hppodcraft.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're here at hppodcraft.com, and this is our free show for the month of June. Please consider joining us on Patreon, where we cover a story in the weird fiction tradition every week. And next month, we'll be extending that reach to include more science fiction and fantasy, as well as all sorts of disquieting literary fiction as strange studies of strange stories. But this week, we are joined by a guest. He is the author of over 35 novels and countless short stories in the horror genre. Ladies and gentlemen, Ramsey Campbell. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks guys. Thank you for having me. We're so grateful that you've taken the time to speak with us. You've actually been guiding the content of the show for the last month as the stories we covered were all from your late 80s anthology, Fine Frights. Stories uh-huh. that scared me, which as promised, made us both wet our pants. Uh, <laughs> actually made us wet each other's pants. So extremely yeah. effective. And this month, we're covering a couple of tales from the folio book of horror stories, which is a beautiful book illustrated by Corey Brickley uh, that you've edited and is available now from the Folio Society. And we'll link out to that in the show notes. Yeah, we're doing Brenda and the Bus by Shirley Jackson from that book. Both are incredible stories. And we've got a ton of questions, but I'm going to go ahead and jump in on something specific, having just read this stuff. We've been doing this show for 13 years this month, starting with Lovecraft's fiction and then reading through the work of his influences and those he influenced, as well as a number of tangentially related stories in the horror field. And after 600 or so of these, one begins to feel like, I've seen all the ways into a horror story. 98% are inherited mansions. But two (laughs) stories we've covered from uh, Fine Frights last month, Child's Play by Billy Sorensen. and Lost Memory by Peter Phillips. They gave me that rush of novelty because both stories involved the horrors of limited perspective. Characters that think they're doing the right thing, maybe, but are just missing some kind of crucial understanding. In both stories, it's misunderstanding how the human body works based on limited information that uh, the characters are very confident in. These stories kicked off your anthology, Fine Frights, and I wondered what attracted you to that specific theme of within the horror genre. Well, it wasn't so much that. It was just that those stories had stuck so strongly in my mind. Now, I have to tell you this. I first read Child's Play when I was the age of the kids in the story. Um, Oh, my God. Wow. So it was kind of a baptism of fire. My mother was allowing me to take adult stuff out from the local public library on her ticket. And Mm -hmm. if it was in the library in hardcover, it was respectable. So little did she know, quite obviously in this case, because in those days, of course, there was no horror section. It was just the fiction, you know. Fiction was just in the alphabetical order of author on the shelf. So, and, and for me, this was part of the excitement of belonging to a library. The whole business of, of finding the unexpected. And, you know, mm-hmm. occasionally I'd take something off the shelf only to realize it was not what it sounded like, put it back again. So, I mean, George du Maurier's novel, The Martian, <laughs> it, it is apparently, in a way, a kind of science fiction fantasy, but didn't seem very much like one to me at you know, the age of eight or whatever it was. Sure. I, I re- refiled it. However, the Sorensen book, uh, which was introduced by Angus Wilson, no less, you know, was a, a major British literary figure at that time, was called Strange Stories. So I thought, well, you know, this has got to be the sort of thing I'd like. And I, I duly mm-hmm. took it out. And obviously the librarian who stamped it out did not notice <laughs> the kind of thing I was 
I, the, the 10-year-old me was taking away. And funny enough, the only book she ever said, no, no, you mustn't have that, was Gogol's Dead Souls. Oh. I, I don't know why that was regarded as being forbidden, but it was. So that was the one that got stopped at the counter. Oh, you must have wanted to read it more than anything at that yeah. point then. Well, yes, of course I did, yeah. <laughs> it was years before I got to it. However, the Sorensen starts off with child's play and it was one of the stories and we'll get to another later on in our talk i suspect but it was one of the very first stories i remember reading and thinking basically my i mustn't let my mother see i'm reading this you know because mm. my god you know, she, she's not going to like this at all and it deeply troubled me of course as you can well imagine yeah stuck in my mind decades later i realized when i was when i was going to edit fine frights which, incidentally, I'll explain the title in a, in a moment, too. I mean, I was, no, nobody's heard of this. Nobody knows Sorensen anymore. Although there was a second collection published by, I think it was an American University Press, in translation. Very difficult to find, mm, yeah, even yeah. now. Indeed. It's always been my ploy with doing reprint anthologies. I want to put stuff in there that I hope even the aficionado will not know. And that was one I thought, yeah, pretty certainly people will not know this. And it seems like I was right. Um, you were. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still find that story deeply disturbing. As you say, it's a, a classic incident, well, not of the unreliable narrator, but the unreliable protagonist, because, you know, they they, they think they know what they're doing, and by gum, do they not? And uh, how, how, horrendous the, uh, how horrendous the consequences of this are, well, only those who've read the tale will know, and obviously the people who are listening who don't know, we, I'm sure we exhort them to go and find out immediately, or as soon as we finish this program. That's yeah. right. You were young. I don't, mm -hmm. it's blowing my mind. My son is seven, almost eight years old. And to think right. that he would be reading Lovecraft, it, it seems in, in a possibility <laughs> yes, yes. that he would ever consider reading that stuff. Even I, when I, I didn't discover Lovecraft until I was 13 or 14 years old. And uh -huh. I thought it was a little unwieldy at times, mm -hmm. just with mm -hmm. his kind of uh, antiquated vocabulary and the, the structure of his stories. Uh -huh. But how did you discover, I mean, I assume you, you just found him at the library. Exactly. But what was it about his books that made you keep reading them? Only a single story, actually, because in those days you couldn't get a complete collection of Lovecraft in, in Britain. Mm. Uh, in, there had been one from Golanks, actually, in the... I think in the early to mid fifties, Steve Jones has a very good uh, little book on on Lovecraft in Britain, actually, which is worth tracking down. Mm. So it gives you a lot of the publishing history. But uh, Golanks had done the Horde of the Dark, as I remember it, which is a, you know a selection of. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. that was way out of print by by well, no, actually, it wasn't. No, it wouldn't have been that long out of print. But it wasn't. It was certainly available in that library, and I didn't know of its existence. Otherwise, you know, I would have ordered it. And so I was only really coming on his stories in anthologies, mainly. Dearth anthologies is this Dearth would slip a Lovecraft turn into science fiction. So, you know, you'd have, but they remind of things like, you know, Beyond the Wall of Sleep yeah. or From mm -hmm. Beyond, you know. Good, yeah, good, but not the not the best. But mm -hmm. there was a Groff Compton anthology called Strange Travels in Science Fiction. Mm -hmm. Came out in 54 in Britain. And that was the one I found when I was eight. And that had the colour out of space. And by gum, that was the other story I was referring to, where again, you know, I thought, I actually had a I'd already read M.R. James, you know, and yeah. E.F. Benson, people like this, and had many a sleepless night after doing that. But reading the colour out of space was somehow different. It was on a different level. It, it actually felt 
almost forbidding, you know. There was again this sense of, you know, I don't want to be seen reading this because it'll be taken away from me as being too much, you know. Yeah. And indeed, it was pretty pretty close to the edge of too much when I, I read it. But I, but I found it hugely powerful, which, of course, it is. You know, I think, yeah. I think on the whole, it's still my, my favourite Lovecraft story, although there's certainly some contenders. But, it, you know, I think that's the one that does that sense of the cosmic more completely than any of the other stories for me you know there's just a sense of of something which he never describes as indescribable I mean that's that cliche notion of what Lovecraft does he very rarely does that at all he conveys Mm. it indirectly but that's a completely different thing but I think that the entire story kind of plays as a metaphor for for the utterly alien it was just a car out of space but that's that's all you need it's the the perfect symbol at the same time got to be on a very visceral level as well Um, you know I remember, I remember the, um, who is it now? It's the narrator within the narration who picks up the stick, uh, you know, to, when he's gone up to see this crumbling person mm-hmm. and, and leaves the stick when he's done. I mean, not tell what he's done, but by God, at eight years old, I knew perfectly well. And it, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, was deeply disturbing to me. What? So you were eight when you read The Color Out of Space? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so horrified. <laughs> and horrifying story. I thought about yes. it actually in the context of child's play because the color out of space is again involving something that we just can't understand. Yes, that's and right. And did we cause this? Because, you know, I actually I was watching the 1950s War of the Worlds where a similar thing happens. Mm. Here's a meteorite. Let's just go hit it with a hammer. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. See what happens. In the color out of space, we never really get to know. Is it the color? Is it uh, something that seeped into the ground? What is this alien presence? It's beyond our human senses. And I think that yes. what a great introduction to Lovecraft, because that is the cosmic horror. And then also we have the degrading bodies that are falling apart, which I was thinking about a bit as I just read uh, Brenda by Margaret ah, St. Clair that's yeah, yeah. included in um, in the folio book of horror. Mm-hmm. And I thought about that in relation to your story down there, which I also read recently, ah. which is another uh, shambling sort of devolving human in form. We can get to that stuff in a bit, but I wanted to say we, we we try to popularize weird fiction, find stories and authors that maybe aren't so so well known, much as you're trying to do with these anthologies. And we always ask everybody, when did they start reading Lovecraft here? But I wonder, when did you find yourself first sharing good stories with others? Obviously, you felt... <laughs> it's funny because when I was reading The Case of Charles Dexter Ward was the first thing I read. And part of the thing about that purple prose that was nice is it felt... I felt like it protected me. Mm. If my parents were to pick that up, they'd go, this is just a bunch of gobbledygook. It's, <laughs> this is Shakespeare stuff that this kid's in, and they wouldn't see what it was really about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but when did you find yourself first sharing good stories with others, or making recommendations, or, oh. or clicking into a community of folks that might be interested in that knowledge? Gosh, well, let me think. I suppose it was when I was at school to begin with, and probably... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what we call grammar school at, in, in Britain, which is, you know, like, you know, a fee-paying high school. But one friend, a particular guy, Kevin Bolger, who sadly I've lost touch with, so if you're listening to this, Kevin, you know, drop me a, <laughs> drop me an email or a Facebook you know, message or, or something. I used to pass on particularly Lovecraft to him, and Frank Long, I remember, also. I remember, interestingly enough, I remember Kevin felt that, you know, Long was, was, was much sparer than Lovecraft, the, the, 
you know, the style didn't really work as well mm. because, it, you know, his view, you know, Long would just tell you, whereas Lovegood would, you know, kind of orchestrate the prose, it was, as Fritz Leiber put it, really, which, of course, he does do. Mm. Um, so, you know, Kevin was, was particularly the guy I'd, I'd, I'd passed books on to when I read them. And then... Um, in my early teens, though, I, I, I joined the British Science Fiction Association ah. and um, then started corresponding with, with, with other folks, you know, got into fandom uh, through, through, through the letter pages and so forth. Mm -hmm. And again, one friend in particular, Pat Kearney, uh, who is now, um, uh, uh, oh, I mean, has written a considerable number of, of bibliographical studies, particularly of erotica, actually. Mm -hmm. he, he was a historian of the Olympia Press, for instance. But Pat and I, you know, got together as correspondents originally uh, via the, the the postal library of the the British Science Fiction Association because you were the only two guys taking out issues of weird tales. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> Peter Maybe, who was the the librarian there, he, he you know he put us together uh, via correspondence, and we we became friends. And uh, in fact, it was Pat who, who who having learned that I was writing Lovecraft pastiches, you know, encouraged me to send them off to August Earle for an opinion, and you know. The rest we know, as they say. So I was curious about what that landscape was like. And I, uh, you're explaining it, really, that you were in a science fiction club and that through correspondence, you sort of met these other people and shared these stories and they encouraged you yeah. to send stuff to August Derleth. Mm -hmm. And you worked with August Derleth. Not, did you ever meet him in person? No, sadly, never did. No, I mean, he died before... Years before I first went to America, which is mm -hmm. one of my great regrets, you know. But we corresponded for 10 years. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, there is a, a PS publishing collection of all of our uh, extant correspondence called Letters to Arkham, mm -hmm. which will, you know, shows you our kind of developing relationship, not merely as, you know, as writer and mentor, because, you know, just as Lovecraft was Durlis' mentor, Durlis was mine. In fact, it's extraordinary when you read their letters and then our letters, uh, how similar some of the correspondence is in a way, you know. Wow. So you, you basically get, you know, young girls saying what I did when I was 15, and then, you know, Durth, the mature girls saying stuff to me as Lovecraft did to him when he was a young, you know, aspiring writer. So uh -huh. I, I, I have a very strong sense of continuity, and I've kind of tried to pass that on, that on me too, you know, to help new writers uh, as best I can as well. You know, we've covered a lot of Lovecraft pastiches on the show from Robert Block and Derleth himself. Mm -hmm. And even Stephen King did his Lovecraft pastiche with Jerusalem's Lot. It seems oh, yeah. like a sort of rite of passage for horror writers. Yeah, Crouch End, yeah. I'm a big fan of uh, Alone with the Horrors, Chris. I think that's what you've been reading, right? Yeah. Uh, recently, uh -huh. uh, which covers your short fiction from 61 to 91. The, the additional benefit or value add to that, aside from the great stories, is that they're included chronologically. Yes. And we can watch your style evolve from those Lovecraftian affectations to something that's uniquely yours. Mm -hmm. I do think, speaking of young writers, a lot of young potential writers, they'll put down the pen because they feel that they're imitating their heroes or they're just treading ground that's been tread before. Yeah. But clearly there's some value in this. Oh, yes, gosh, I think so. It's not because I think it's, it seems to me like it's mainly in in writing fiction that people, you know, are, are, are a bit wary of imitation. But I mean, mm -hmm. well, I mean, the, the thing I always cite you know, is, is music. I mean, you know, early Beethoven sounds like Haydn, but he also learned from Mozart and, you know, early 
early, mm-hmm. early Wagner sounds like Beethoven. Early right. Richard Strauss sounds like Wagner. So you get so many, but you know, you would never mistake one for the other once they, you know, once they hit their stride. And I think the same is true with writing, really. Well, Lovecraft himself talked about having his Poe stories and his Dunsany stories. Yeah, where are my stories? Where's my voice? Well, we could we could see it even if he couldn't. That's the, that's the irony, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So what does it mean to be a mythos writer? I think that your work transcends that classification, but I've when I first heard your name mentioned, they were saying, oh yeah, he's a mythos writer. Mm-hmm, sure. The label did initially get me to read your work. Well, to be honest, you know, I, I, I'm happy to be called it, you know, I, I think kind of invented my own little little corner of it. I, I've now tended to call the bitterest a mythos because, you know, there's these various creatures that, that hang around in the Seven Valley in, in England. Uh-huh. Part because, mm-hmm. you know, said, don't, don't use Massachusetts, you know, invent your own <laughs> milieu, which I duly did. Yeah. Um, but I'm very much come back to this you know that i did this trilogy recently and and that that's you know it's basically me going back to those those concepts that i had in my mid-teens really you know glacky uh, and dale off and 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 and, and friends mm-hmm. trying to to do right by them because it seems to me you know, i wasn't technically equipped back then uh-huh. to, to do them justice but now you know i i, I yeah, well yeah i just like to give them another world basically but the other thing is that's so extraordinary you ask what it means to be a business writer what it seems to mean is is that these things Go away from you, just as they did with Lovecraft, obviously, yeah. uh, and mm-hmm. and take on this extraordinary kind of life of their own, you know. Uh, and so they're, they're out there in the world. There's nothing I can do about it now. They're, they're out there. <laughs> so I can't call them back. And so, you know, you've got people using them as Twitter handles and Facebook profiles. Sure. Heavy metal bands are doing songs about them. And you know, people are an amazing, amazing amount of art out there you know, based oh, yeah. on them, you know, Astonishing, some great stuff. I'll tell you what it feels like. It feels like being uh, Victor Frankenstein. <laughs> Your monsters have gone off, and you can't stop them now. They're, they're, <laughs> you know, there's nothing you can do about them now. They've taken on their own their own monstrous life. Yeah, but I think that must feel pretty good in a way. Mm-hmm. That's, that you've created something that you know already. Yeah. You know is going to live beyond you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that's it, you know. So, you know, the world may thank me or it may curse me, but, but you know, <laughs> it's beyond me now. But you'll be out there on the Arctic at the end chasing <laughs> that right. monster down. I, I, I really enjoyed, we also covered the horror at Chilton Castle, which was a Joseph oh, yes. Payne Brennan yes. story. Mm-hmm. Um, we loved Brennan's slime yes. that we covered, I think, last year or the year before. But I liked your forward to it where you directed your focus on his ability to enliven what would be a predictable sort of weird tale story mm. with his economical and careful writing style, yes. which which I definitely I think he shares that in common with Margaret St. Clair, who, who who wrote Brenda, also has a very clear non purple prose style. Yes. Who are some writers outside of horror fiction, maybe that have shaped how you put your text to page, aside from Lovecraft? Oh well, outside the field, um, I mean, well, well, one single above all was absolute. I mean, just as really Lovecraft when I was fourteen, a complete book of his, you know, was what mm. really steeped me in him and made me want to to do this stuff, you know, that started me off imitating. But well, it's strange enough, it was almost immediately after I finished writing that first collection, The Inhabitant of the Lake. I was just turning seventeen. And I happened to, well, I happened to, it was on a station bookstore, uh, a copy of Lo 
Lolita. And ah, that was an absolute epiphany of how what you could do with language, this sort of extraordinary kind of relish of language, but, you know, what you could do with narrative, how you could come up your themes obliquely and, you know, uh, I mean, basically write a comic novel about the most unlikely and, and theoretically, um, you know, unwelcoming subject. Because, I mean, yeah. among other things, it was a very funny book. It's also a highly disturbing book, quite obviously. Yeah. But it was, it was just an utter revelation to me. And it's, it's, I mean, I, and let me confess, you know, I was 17, just going on 17. And one of the reasons I thought it was, you know, it was supposedly a naughty book, you know. But yeah, I, only, I read the first few pages, I thought, this is so much more. Once I finished it, I, I, I got hold of everything else by Nabokov I should get my hands on. And as, as great luck would have it, Pale Fire came out almost immediately after it, which I'm funny enough, I'm rereading right now. I haven't reread it for since I originally did, like, oh, good God, more than 50 years ago. It's, it's just as astounding now as it was to me then. But what kind of disconcerts me is I now realize just how much I learned from it that I'd forgotten mm. from Pale Fire. There are echoes of that in various things that I've written since, in terms of particularly, if you like, the not so much the unreliable narrator, the inadvertent narrator. You know, the narrator is telling you stuff he doesn't realize he's revealing. Uh -huh. um, yeah. that, you know, that's crucial to Pale Fire. It's also crucial to a whole lot of stuff I've written, and um, I now see how much of a debt I owe. You know, it's funny, the little themes coming up here in the show, because I didn't read Lolita until I was much older. I would mm. think I was in my 30s, and I, but I was reading it, uh -huh. uh, commuting to a job on a bus, <laughs> and I kept feeling like I was doing something wrong, <laughs> like I was going to get in trouble. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm completely bare-faced about these things, though, and I, I read Dessard on the train, the hell with it. <laughs> Recently, I've discovered Aikman, Robert Aikman's work, yes. and that's how we had Jeremy on the show, Jeremy Dyson, yes. uh, because he did that great mini documentary on, on Radio 3 or Radio 4 about right. Aikman. Right. We were able to talk to him about Aikman because he knows so much about the fella. I know that you read Aikman as well. Mm. How did yes. you discover his work? Oh, in a paperback of Dark Entries way back in what uh, it, 63 or 60, 64, I think it would have been. I mm. remember recommending him to Derleth, actually, saying, you know, here's a here's a British writer you probably haven't heard of and you, you must read. So I duly bought a, a spare of dark entries and sent it over to him and he was wow. you know, he was pretty well taken with it he, he, he then approached Aikman for a story Travelers by Night uh -huh. and the original story that does that, I don't know which one Robert sent him but it was does regarded as being not that supernatural so he, mm -hmm. you know, he asked him to do another one he did the Cicerones or Cicerones and um, oh, right. yeah, yeah. of course he did buy that and funny because Jeremy you, you remember uh, Jeremy and Mark Gatiss did a, a film of that um, which you know, they did yeah which is very good Good, very good. Sadly, there was the notion of Arkham doing you know, a Best of Aikman collection, but they couldn't come to terms, oh. so that never came to fruition. So, but as I said, but to go back to your original question, no, it was it was going dark entries in paperback. This was again another revelation. One of my favourite films then and now is Last Year in Marion Bad, and one of the things that confirms to me, you know, an enigma can be more satisfying than any solution. Yeah. And I find this very much with Aikman too. Mm. Um, so again, I, you know, I, I duly got everything else I could find well, as they came out. And we actually did become correspondents and eventually friends, uh, Aitman and I, and, and he came to oh. stay with Jenny and me back when we had our first house in Bullapool for a weekend. Wow. We, we had a, we had a, a variously memorable time. <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, Robert was a man of strong opinions, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm just curious what kind of guy he was or what he was like to hang out with. He was a tremendous conversationalist. And Hugh Lamb, the anthologist, again, sadly, no uh, two men no longer with us. But, but Hugh made the, the very perspicacious comment that Robert would, rem- in conversation, Robert would rem- remind you how much you knew. He was very good at drawing you out. Huh. You, you know, and, and he, you know, even if he didn't agree, he, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there were people with whom he, he had tremendous confrontations, but ne- never with us. He was, he was, he was very genial. And he, you know, yeah. even when we disagreed, it would be a genial, uh, sort of amused disagreement. Because, uh-huh. for instance, you know, I mean, some of these were just very, very friendly disagreements. We'd be disagreeing about what was the, what was the best Arthur Mackin story, what was the best Alden Blackwood story. Sure, you know, sure. In each case, we we too had you know different views. But sometimes his views were a whole lot stronger. He absolutely detested the film Don't Look Now, for instance, in, in every, <laughs> every possible way, you know? Is that right? Yes, yes, we are. Oh, oh yeah. wow. We were just talking about that movie yesterday, Chris. Uh-huh. Yes, we yeah. were, yeah, because I just watched um, the uh, the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and oh, yeah. we, we had seen we had seen that. What we're talking about, uh, you know, seventies Donald mm-hmm. Sutherland, yeah, the, the subgenre oh. of seedy feeling Donald Sutherland films, yes, and yes. which those two fall into. That's right. Well, you see, he loved Donald Sutherland. He, he scoffed at uh, uh, Sutherland's accent, which he apparently I think he found somehow fake. It's not obvious. It's a, a genuine accent. But there you go. Robert explained it. Wow. Awesome. That, see, I didn't think we get a Robert Aikman, Donald Sutherland rivalry on this show ever. <laughs> and I've been spoiling for it for a long time. You oh, know, I just yeah. read your story uh, Just Waiting from Alone uh-huh. with the Horrors, and that yeah. had a very Aikman-type feel, I thought, uh, yes. in that there were some unresolved questions in it, but also there were horrific waiters, I guess, mm. is what really it was like in the hospice. Well, um, yes, of course. Now, you see, that, that's an odd case. I mean, I had not written a short story for three years. Uh, which is not so I haven't written anything, but, but, but the previous three years had actually been taken with novels. Ah. And I, I mean, I, 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 the most ambitious of that book, which was Incarnate, and that took mm. me 18 months, you see, and so there wasn't wow. really room. I remember I went off with, with Jenny and I, we, uh, and the, the kids then young, you know, we went off for a, a Sunday picnic in um, uh-huh. one of the, the forests nearby, Delamere Forest, which has lots of picnic tables. And we were just sitting at the table, and, I, and I, I, all of a sudden, just this came to me, and I just kind of told the story, the basic story, to the family. You know, to, um, this whole idea of waiters coming out of the woods to serve us. And yeah. You know, they've, they've got bare feet, and that's the first really. That was unsettling. <laughs> I, why, why do they have bare feet? Yeah, very well done. <laughs> yeah, well, that was. You told the story to your family. That was the been an. Oh no! Well, well, they were used to it by then. I used to <laughs> come up with this stuff. <laughs> Another one around the, the same area was completely unrelated. Just came to me out of the air. Was um, there's a story of mine called The Guide, which is uh, a kind of M.R. James tribute. Mm-hmm. And there's a paragraph in there which goes something like, "You know, imag- imagine a spider in human form with only four limbs. A spider both enraged and made in ungainly by the loss, particularly since the remaining limbs are by no means evenly distributed." Oh and that, that whole <laughs> sentence just came to me out of the air, you know, or possibly out of a certain amount of, of minor hallucinogenic 
unapologetic self-indulgence, but that's the story. <laughs> that's the story for another, another episode. Uh, wow. I wrote that down, and of course I thought, well, well I've got to do something with this. And when, um, when I was asked to do a, a story for an anthology of kind of traditional ghost stories, I thought, well, okay, let's incorporate that and, and somehow make it by M.R. James within the story, and that's, that's where that whole thing came from. But mm. initially it came out of a, a woodland walk. Do you often stop with the short fiction while you're writing a longer piece like a novel? Oh, always. It, well, I, I won't ever write more than one piece of fiction at a time. So while okay. I'm doing a new first draft of one thing, nothing else, I'll, I'll, I'll work on other things, but I won't actually write a new story or more than one at a time. On this show, we talk a lot of, there are the things we take very seriously, and then there are sort of pulpy or maybe poorly written or um, stories with big ideas that don't quite stick the landing that we still love yeah. uh, to yeah. discuss. And for example, in our bonus episodes, we cover episodes of the, the television show Manimal because uh-huh. Uh-huh. we find that very entertaining. What are some <laughs> ridiculous stories or or movies that you like, things that are flawed or maybe even stupid, but you love them anyway? Well, I mean, one of the greatest films of all time, and I'll, I'll brook no argument from anybody on this, is Plan 9 from Outer Space. Which is yes. cold, of course. absolutely oh, yes. inexhaustible. Absolutely. And I don't think it's a, a guilty place. I think it's a, it's a great pleasure. You know, Jenny and I'll watch that anytime, you know, and, yeah. and <laughs> not quite as fine, but still Bride of the Monster, you know, yeah. uh, uh-huh. is, is very extraordinary. Um, oh, Glenn or Glenda, yeah. I mean, Edward, yes. generally speaking. And it is, it's precisely that. Absolute earnestness, I think, that you sense. Yes, that, yes. That, you know, he's Absolutely. not setting this up. He's, he's genuinely, you know, trying to do the best he possibly can, getting it wrong in so many different ways. <laughs> You know, oh, yeah. You talking about the, the character accidentally revealing themselves. You mm. know, he's got a book called Hollywood Rat Race that is Ed Wood's uh, How to Make It in Hollywood. Ah. And he's sort of posing as being this accomplished producer, which to an extent he is. Thank I mean, you. he got those yeah. movies made. Yeah. But he reveals things about his own life accidentally. Like, here's a good place to, to sleep in Griffith Park. And here's how you can trick people into thinking you have your own phone. <laughs> so you get a sense of his poverty yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the life he's actually dealing with almost accidentally and it's and it's a it's in line with the rest of his work as being so in earnest yes but just quite missing the mark a little bit which is oh, well, kind of my favorite genre of things i've said more than a little bit but you're being obviously very kind hearted <laughs> but uh, no, I, think, I think he misses the mark inventively yes without cease basically I mean, the thing yeah. is you know i can always find something new when i go back yeah. to uh, now there's always something i didn't uh, just uh, inexhaustible as far as i'm concerned you're right we i mean it took a long time for me to realize mm. that Bella must have been naked under that cape for the whole movie. <laughs> because when the when the thing hits him and they find the skeleton, it still has the cape on. That's so right. that means that this thing didn't affect fabric, which means the whole time he's lurking around or his chiropractor double, he's naked under that cape. That, you know, there's many a werewolf who's about to subsume, not merely subsume the suit they're wearing, but, but reproduce it when they turn back into human. I don't know. Right. <laughs> and again, let me point this out to you, which is not, I mean, it's an absolutely great film without any question whatsoever, you know, as uh-huh. I'm not about to piddle on it, you know, but I mean, King Kong, to my mind, is the greatest monster of all time, you know, goes, yeah. really. But there is one thing it has in common with uh, The Amazing Colossal Man, or actually War of the Colossal Beast, which is the, the sequel to The Amazing Colossal Man. You ever <laughs> notice these giant guys, they hop because they only yeah, right. leave one footprint. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
there's a great moment in War of the Colossal Beast where the um, poor, poor old colossal man's uh, sister, I think it's his sister, isn't it? I think, uh, you know, has now been roped into the search party by the scientists. And one of the scientists, they find this footprint, and the scientist, one of them, says very gravely, Judging from this footprint, the man who made it must be 85 feet tall. <laughs> our heroine says, my brother is 85 feet tall. Presumably <laughs> from his cousin who is only 84 and a half, I don't know. And they, they need that identification. <laughs> also, nobody concludes, and he's only got one leg. Well, that's right. <laughs> Clearly. That's right. <laughs> to bring it back to sort of Lovecraftian creepy stuff, cosmic horror... What does it mean to you, and what do you think is its appeal? Oh, for me, it's a kind of sense of awe, you know, a sense of reaching for something larger than you can actually directly show. Just the sense of, of, of the wonders of the universe, if you like. So, I mean, I think Fritz Leibold, it writes so often, Fritz did, you know. It, it's a sort of combination of wonder and terror, really. That's what does it, really, for me. And, you know, you can find it in Lovecraft, but you also find it, I think, in, you know, Olaf Stapledon, who was, who was writing, you know, science fiction that was not overtly horrific but again there's a sense of real terror i think as the the canvas gets larger and larger mm-hmm. in something like star maker he, he, you know he touches on the love i can't i can't know you may perhaps recall this did did Lovecraft read Staples? And I think he did, actually. I'm not sure. Along the way. I think, I think he praised him, yeah. So I think they have more in common, for instance, than is often acknowledged. That, for me, is the, is the real appeal of that. I think, you know, again, you find it in something like The Willows, the Arjun and Blackwood. But I should explain, I, I didn't include, I would have loved to include that in the folio book. Yeah. The reason I don't, sheer, just reasons of space. And there were limit to the number of stories of, of you know, sure. of that length that I could include. And I, I wasn't going to be done out of the white people, which is possibly my all-time favourite horror story. So that had to go in. I had to have something by Steve King because that would be incomplete otherwise. But you know, when I realised, you know, a lot of his stories are really pretty long. You know, a lot of the best ones. So you know, and I, yeah. I, want, I really wanted 1408. So the the Blackwood I used is Ancient Light, but I think that's a real distillation of Blackwood. Um, it's not it's not the usual style, but his genius shines through it all the same, even though. Yeah. Just an eight-page story, so that was my sort of a compromise there. Well, I've read Stephen King mentions you in Dance Macabre, doesn't he? He does, he does. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because in fact, we had, when he met, we had met when he came to England first time he came over. He and he got the publishers to track me and and also Jim Herbert down because he wanted to just to get together, really, you know. But eventually, right. I don't think we already have Dance Macabre in mind. Maybe not. Maybe uh-huh. just you know, making friends in the in the genre, I think, probably more than anything else. But obviously, he did write as a, both of us in, in Dance Macabre. And, and I, I imagine he must have done this with Jim. He certainly rang me up from Maine. We had a long talk over the phone uh, about the you know about my stuff, which he mm-hmm. much which he then incorporated in, in that chapter. You say the white people is your favorite Macintosh. Mm-hmm. Story. Mm-hmm. And oh, yes. to go back to an earlier theme, when I was reading Brenda and it was the female protagonist mm-hmm. uh, dealing with this sort of malformed, slimy, de-evolving man. Yes. And then in Down There, your story, also a woman trapped in a building with strange primordial creatures mm. below. Sorry to tip the plot. Uh, <laughs> but we also recently covered Fat Face by Michael Shea, yes. 
yes. uh, with our guest Pat Oswald. And that, again, is a Shoggoth-like gelatinous fellow uh, versus a, a woman as the main character. Yes, and right. the white people has a little to do with this as well, where it's mm-hmm. the young know, girl's initiation into, we, we think, a cult or some sort of pagan ritual. Yes. What do you think is the relationship between the sort of de-evolving man and as a concept in general, and then why are we approaching it with these female characters? I have no idea. I mean, it never occurred to me before. <laughs> You're absolutely right. It's, 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 a, it's a very sort of intriguing kind of set of symbols, isn't it? And, yeah. You know, honestly, again, because actually extending it a little bit further in Macken, of course, you do often have this sense of physical breakdown, in, not in that story particularly, but most certainly in the great god Pan. And, right. And, and the and the the black seal actually and the white powder. Uh, it's, it's a, it's the a, white powder is what I was trying to think of because they actually yeah. depict a sort of melting mass of yes, people that, in that's that right. as well. So it's yeah. very much a recurrent theme. But I mean, it's a, re- a return to the primordial. It's difficult to know in in the Saint Clair. You see. Would we see it as being some sort of symbol of the, of, of on the one of the devolution of the male and the ascendance of the female? Because you know, Margaret Sinclair was was certainly into 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 magic and paganism, and she, mm-hmm. I mean, that comes over very strongly in, in some of her later work. But she did interested in, and I think to some extent, practice some forms of magic. She and her her husband. So um, I think these these underlie her fiction. There may you know there may be more symbolism in there than is apparent to somebody not as well tutored in it as I am. Macken was, of course, a member like Blackwood uh, for a while of the Golden, the Order of the Golden Dawn, so the, mm-hmm. they would certainly yeah. have some magical knowledge to what extent they put into the practice of the matter, but well, it's, it's hardly surprising if it, if it rises up in, in some form in their fiction. Absolutely. Yeah. Who are some short story writers that maybe we should look at going forward who maybe haven't gotten much exposure that you are a fan of or think that more people should be reading? It can be current or oh. hopefully from the past. Well, obviously, there, there are a lot I think we now we now assume that the greats are are, are well known by by most. Well, let me think of a few. I mean, for instance, L. P. Hartley. You see, isn't necessarily associated that much with the field. You know, most people maybe think of the Go Between as a you know, because it's a very fine, loosely film based on it. But but Hartley wrote several dozen uh, supernatural horror stories, and there have been, there's at least one collection of them. Although you you, you could equally well get his collected short stories. Stories and and find you know, a lot of other things in there as well because actually this is a crucial thing I think that back then more so than now although perhaps it's coming back again supernatural horror and the macabre were not particularly regarded as being separate from literature they were just part of of the mainstream if you like and it was mm. by no means unusual for short story writers just to include some stories of this kind in their collections of a more more general fiction. So you have this with Hartley. You have it with W. W. Jacobs again, probably crucially fated for the monkey's paw. But he wrote mm-hmm. at least a book's worth of supernatural horror stories and macabre stories. Again, you can get a collection of them now because were, then back then in his time they were scattered through his his collections. Uh, Elizabeth Bowen, you, you would certainly find very rewarding in similar terms. Graham Greene wrote only a few, but they're powerful stories. And Little Place on the Edge, Little Place Off the Edge Where Road is probably the, the, the most striking and certainly the most macabre. One who's coming back into print very, very soon now uh, is Nigel Neal. Now, you may, they may ring a bell for the Quatermass films, maybe. Oh, okay. uh, I, I hope so. He was a tremendous talent. And, you know, 
know, he, he, he had a real Lovecraftian sense of, you know, melding the supernatural and the scientific and taking them forward into, into something new. But his original collection called Tomato Cain, Cain as in, you know, Cain and Abel from the late 40s, it is a, a, a lot of macabre fiction and, and some overtly supernatural, which has the seeds of the, you know, his Quatermass developments in there. And um, that that is is being reprinted very soon now in Britain uh, by Collar Press. And uh, I exhort people to to track that one down. And I, I, I since you brought up Margaret Sinclair, let me just say that I edited a, mm. a collection of her best for, for Dover books uh, a couple of years back, and that's still... Still well in print, and I would, mm. I would I would send folk out to grab that because it really is. It's got some very striking stuff in it. We'll be covering that story next week, and so okay. I, I'm very interested in reading more of her work. I mm-hmm. thought Brenda was excellent. Mm-hmm. And as for now, well, there are so many. Oh Lord, you see, when I get asked this question, I always get this panic because I know of people, as, soon as, as soon as we're off the air, I'm going to say, Oh God, I should have told. You know, I should have mentioned so and so and them as well, and and those yeah. you know to. Well, that, that's why we don't cover living artists on mm-hmm, our mm-hmm. on our podcast because we're afraid <laughs> we're yes. going to upset somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. But I mean, all I will just say is this: there's so much talent out there now that I, you know, I, I, I would not. It would take me more than this entire program to, of course, you know, probably even to name them. Never mind do them justice. So I would yeah. say basically check out. Um, Ellen Datlow's best horror anthologies and Steve Jones, although he's he's now come to the end of them, but he did thirty-one anthologies of you know best horror of the year, best new horror, and those will give you enormous numbers of of writers to follow up. And I you know I, I endorse his taste. Well, I'm so glad that you continue to identify as a horror author despite being best-selling and successful <laughs> and writing all these books and winning all these awards. That you are, are not running away from it once you've had your success with the thrills. No. And- no, no, I, I write horror. That's what I say. I find that there's just as much in horror literature to uncover and learn about as there are in, in any genre. And I think sure. when you're mentioning that most writers at a certain time period would have written one or two horror ghost stories, I think that's because mm-hmm. it's part of the human experience and sure. needs to be articulated. And I'm so grateful for all of your work and for continuing champion the fiction of others. We're, it's a great benefit to us as a culture to have you kicking around, Ramsey. Well, I do my best, do my best. What have you got coming up, uh, Ramsey? Anything? that you can tell us about? Well, uh, I mean, the trilogy is now out in mass market. The, all three books of them are, are there. Uh, there's a new cosmic horror novel of mine coming out in, in September from Flame Tree Press called Fellstones. One word, Fellstones, which is mm-hmm. the name of a, an English village and also the, the, the ancient monument at the centre of the village that gives it its name, and which is, I'm sure you won't need me to tell you this, has a certain cosmic significance, which becomes you know, increasingly apparent as the... Uh, as the book goes on. And, well, let me try and shock you with, um, with, a, with a final <laughs> revelation. Okay. Because the other book I'm working on now, and I mean pretty close to completion, but whenever I think I've finished it, something else comes up, I have to incorporate it. But I've now done about 70,000 words of a monograph about the Three Stooges. <laughs> 
No way! <laughs> oh my gosh, that's excellent. I just watched a Stooges where they thought they killed a guy, yes. and they they shot a mannequin and just assumed that they had murdered somebody yes. and immediately went to hiding the body. Yes, yes. I know that film. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's the one where it's out in a pet cemetery and there's a guy dressed like the devil. It was a really crazy one. But I thought, what are the morals of these Stooges? I mean, they, were, they didn't even think about turning themselves oh, in. Oh, no, no, they're true, true, true anarchists, I'd say, the Stooges. <laughs> that's part of what uh, what becomes so interesting. And the more I looked at them, you see, the more I find them interesting. And they seem to have the strangest career of any you know Hollywood comedy team in in history because because the personnel keeps changing, you know. Yes. And it takes us right back to Ed Wood and fake Shemps, basically, you know, fake Bella. That's <laughs> right. That's right. Because I was surprised to find out even later that that Mo replaced Larry. Yeah. yeah. Later on, you know, you were used to the Curly and the Shemp and the Curly Joe and those yeah, replacements. Yeah, yeah. But Larry? Oh, no, yeah. Mo just kept that stooge train going. That's right. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited about that. Well, yeah. I, so I got one. I, I made one sale already. So I can I get <laughs> <laughs> the whole show's been worth it. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, Ramsey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I'm still reeling. I didn't know that you knew Robert Aikman. That's I'm just flabbergasted by that. I know all those guys. <laughs> yes, I have, I have their essential salts here on my desk. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> but thank you so much for taking the time. I love your work. I am a huge fan, and I don't get to say that very often to people. It's an honor to have you on the show. Gentlemen, it was my, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Folks, we're going to be back next week with Brenda by Margaret St. Clair, and then we'll be doing The Bus by Shirley Jackson. Also in the Folio Book of Horror Stories, we're going to link out to all these things in the show notes so that you can pick them up. That's all we have for now. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Ramsey Campbell. And I'm going to come and see you tonight in the dark. (laughs) (laughs) So look forward to that, folks. Thanks for tuning in to (laughs) (laughs) hppodcraft.com.